there were some people that this was an important topic. It's one of the issues that uh, I think is a mental barrier for many people that I have to go raise funds to head overseas and uh, and then continue to keep those going for many years. Uh, I was thinking about that last week. I got a note from a couple that was 85 years old going into assisted living, and they wrote me a note and said, uh, sorry, we're not going to be able to continue our support beyond uh, this last $10 check. And they had started supporting us in 1981, before, well, actually 1980, before we first went out, dear friends and people we had been in contact with. So we're going to dig into this. I want to give you, this is going to be very practical of how-to's. Um, it's uh, important, and it's also a ministry, and we're going to talk about that because you can look at fundraising as a chore, or you can look at it as an opportunity for ministry. Uh, I thought the first thing I'd do would put up our first prayer card <laughs> from 1980 with our three-year-old and our one-year-old when we actually uh, left for the field. And uh, start with the very basics, because one of the things you have to do is get opportunities to tell people about what you're doing, and that involves scheduling. Um, not as much as it used to. I mean, back in my day, we went from church to church to mission conference to mission conference. We're going to get into personal fundraising because that's more what it is today. But used to missions would actually uh, do much of your scheduling for you and tell you where you had to be and show up and be part of some event. And uh, I always was a great believer, instead of having the mission do it, I wanted to do it, especially with young children, because I could then control uh, my schedule and where we were and what we are going to do and avoid never being at home. And then, of course, there's personal contacts, and those are so important. I'm trying to learn how to use this computer. My computer's not, not uh, syncing with projectors. Um, but when you think about personal contacts, one of the key things is, is you want to do this in person. Um, next Tuesday, I'll be leaving to go to Colorado and California to do a couple big financial asks for a capital campaign we're involved in. I'm not going to pick up the phone and call those people uh, because uh, that's too impersonal. I need to be looking them in the eye, seeing the body language, they're seeing me, and having a, a good conversation. Uh, emails and letters for fundraising are the worst. Statistics show that the return on an appeal by a letter is usually 1% to 2% of people that get it actually give. Now, if they're already givers, it's a great reminder and update and all the rest, but to get them to make an initial commitment to something, uh, you want to really set up an appointment, be with the decision maker, both if it's a couple, and uh, we'll talk about how to, uh, to do that. And then one of the best things for fundraising is getting someone else to do the ask. Uh, you ever thought about that? Uh, it, it's very important to make that ask, but having somebody else on a mission committee that you know uh, from a church or somebody who's involved in an organization, getting them to go to bat for you and saying, hey, these are some great folks we know. They're heading overseas. We really would... Um, or even just asking the pastor for podium time uh, or to speak in a Sunday school or to have an opportunity to talk to the mission committee that's making the decisions on their financial support. Having an advocate. And so you begin thinking, who do I know? Where do they go to church? Who would be willing to help us uh, have the opportunity to talk to the key people making decisions uh, about this? You also want to get your foot in the door. I remember I love to preach. And so... You know, I want to be up on the, the podium preaching Sunday morning service or something. And I learned over time that some places it's just getting your foot in the door. It may be in a Sunday school class. I remember I was in a large church our first uh, time raising funds. Uh, somebody I knew got me in, and I talked to the adult Sunday school class. Well, it was a big church. There were 500 people in the combined adult Sunday school class. That was like speaking a for a pretty good-sized church. But getting in the door, doing a quality job, and, uh, and really making an impact opens the door for further ministry in a church, If you're, and that's what we're kind of focused on right now. Um, and then you want to develop um, and 
dream about some of the most productive places. I'd sit down and actually uh, made a list. And, and remember that size is not the most important thing. Uh, sometimes you want to get in front of a large group, uh, but sometimes that's not the best uh, opportunity. I remember we went and spoke in a startup church that was meeting in a gymnasium in uh, Florida. And, um, and I uh, uh, had opportunity to speak on that Sunday morning. And, you know, they were bringing in the chairs and setting them up. And it was maybe two or 300 people. It wasn't huge. They were just getting going. We got more support from that group per capita than any other group I ever spoke to that whole year. Because it was more personal and they were just starting out and new and didn't have a lot of things they were doing already. Secondly, I won't use your strengths. Uh, I mentioned I love to preach. You're probably not a preacher. You may be, and if you are, great. Uh, but you want to use what strengths you have and what you feel comfortable with when you're talking to folks and sharing your story. Um, it can be one-on-one. It can be small groups. But you can do things like storytelling, humor, uh, art, photography, drama, singing, Uh, I remember one of the most uh, effective, uh, it was a nurse, I knew her well, she wasn't a public speaker, but she was very involved in community health. She got up in front of the service and did an ORS demonstration, oral rehydration solution, and uh, talked about how she did it and these kids that she was taking care of uh, overseas, and um, she just was in her element, and then combined that to bridging to the gospel and the gospel being salt and and how this was impacting people's lives as she shared her faith. And it was something that she did all the time. She was completely comfortable with it. She lost thought of herself. And it was extremely effective. Uh, One of my former staff who was a missionary with us in Kenya, he loved drama stuff. And so he would dress up like a Maasai, come in carrying a spear, wearing a blanket, and talk from the perspective of, uh, of the Maasai that he was working with, and it was extremely effective. Uh, so passion speaks the loudest, and what you're passionate about is what you want to talk about, um, and, and uh, because it'll come through, and you want the, the things that you're passionate about to be the things that, uh, you know, whether it's the children or the poor or evangelism or doing surgery on difficult cases, whatever it may be, uh, grab your passion. That will communicate the loudest. And you may do lots of things. You may mention those, but talking about the passionate ones. Secondly, you want to build, thirdly, you want to build bridges. You always, I, I do a lot of communication training for media. We do media training, television, radio, all that kind of stuff. And I always say to them, and I say to you, you want to start from where people are, what they already believe in and care about, and take them to where you want them to go. You have to start from where they are. What you and the Lord uh, care about to what they care about is that bridge that you're trying to build. Help them to get from where they are to where you are. And uh, I remember uh, it was our second home assignment, and uh, we were know we were going to be speaking in a lot of churches, and Jody, my wife, was going with us, uh, with me sometime, and she doesn't consider herself a big public speaker. And I said, honey, what do women care about? They care about their families and their homes. I said, they have no concept of what your life is like in Africa. So why don't you just take them from what they care about to what you're doing? And so she went and took had somebody take pictures of her at the back door buying eggs and when they hung the cow up in the tree and cutting the meat and the kids' education and all her life. Oh, my goodness. I mean, she was more popular than I was. Uh, because women could identify with that, and they had no concept of what it was like and what you know the motion she went through and sending the kids off to boarding school, all those kinds of things. And uh, it had a tremendous, uh, or maybe if you're a spouse, what's it like being married to a healthcare professional that's working in this area and the things you're concerned about and how that's affected your marriage and um, you know what a day in your life is like. And that's essentially what she did was what a day in her life was like. So you don't want to go up and you know start giving hospital statistics and the incidents of malaria. People don't care anything about that. They don't understand it. So start where they are and take them where you want them to go, something that they already 
care about. They care about children. They care about the fact that children are dying. And so what are you doing to meet those needs? They care about orphans. They care about, you know, people being trafficked. Whatever the issue is, uh, find something of that connection point uh, that they can identify with and uh, you can open their eyes. Um, Remember your focus. What are your goals when you're going out fundraising? Now, the mission is going to tell you how much money you need to raise before you can leave. If that's your focus, you've got the wrong focus, really, because your goal should be ministry. I remember my dad saying to me, my dad was an evangelist and knew, you know, spoke all over the country, and he looked at me before we went with the mission. He said, Dave, you will have over half your impact in ministry in this country, even though you're going to spend most of your time overseas. And he was true. Because if you look at what you're doing, when you have this opportunity to touch people's lives as ministry, it changes your whole perspective. And people will support what they are moved about. In other words, it's what they care about. And so if you focus on ministry, uh, the rest will happen. It it just happens. If people are ministered to, they'll want to get uh, touched I get in touch of what you're doing and stay in uh, contact with you. And so you've got to have the right attitude, and um, attitude is so important. I've known some people working in ministry that they're just really mad at people because they're not doing what they're doing. I have some friends that work in inner city ministries, and it's like, I want to take these doctors and shake them. You're just in that comfortable, you know, suburb. You'd be in here working with us. Let me tell you, that doesn't work too well. It doesn't work too well. Um, And then your attitude, if you come across, if you're dreading doing this, guess what? It's going to come through to people that you dread it, uh, have to do it. If you look at it as a God-given opportunity to open people's eyes to a world in need, to shake them out of their complacency, and if you have joy, God has called me and I have the opportunity to serve him, that will be communicated so clearly in your tone, in your inflection, in your interactions with people individually. Uh, and then how do you measure success? It's easy to think of success as, well, we've raised all the money we need. But success means not how much you've raised, but what God has done in individual lives. Um, money follows ministry. Jot that down. Money follows ministry. And if you have a passion for it, you're going out the first time. If you uh, are enthusiastic about what you're doing and then you begin to show them results as you get overseas, uh, then they will be uh, very much wanting to be part of your team. Let's talk a bit about public speaking. We'll get back to the money raising, but all of you are probably going to have to speak publicly somewhere. And... Uh, this is just a simple outline uh, that I like to share to how you go about organizing what you're going to say. Uh, introduction. How do you, one of the things you first want to do is connect with people. Uh, as a healthcare professional, oftentimes people think, well, you know, I, I, I know my doctor or my nurse or whatever. They kind of put you on a pedestal. And one of the things I always try to do is, is, is take down the barriers immediately and using some sort of humor. I have a great story that I'll often use if I go to a place for the first time they don't know me of how I lost my pants in surgery one day. I tied my ring and watch and my drawstring and my pants and I'm doing a C-section and my pants start falling down. People, people say, oh, he's just an average guy, you know, and they're laughing and I want to get to know him, you know, he's fun. Find some humor and the best humor is not jokes about other things, it's humor about yourself. Poke fun at yourself or some other way to, to drop those barriers that people feel. Because people have this, hey, think you've got this halo on your head and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you just, I'm an average person. God's using uh, really communicates well. Secondly, what is the dilemma? What is the issue that needs to be addressed? And you want to get to that fairly early in, in what you're talking about. Uh, what is your passion? And, um, and, and the dilemma that you're trying to solve. And, of course, people don't know the Lord and they need health care. It's pretty clear what your dilemma to be. But how are you going to illustrate that? How are you going to bring it home? 
that's where stories come in so importantly. And uh, people get grasped by stories, and we'll talk more about that. And then what's my key message? Based on Scripture, what do you want them to remember uh, when they leave? Um, I always tell people you want to have a focused, single message, if at all possible. You remember some of you around those days when, um, when that message came out, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming? Remember that one? Tell me the rest of the points of that message. Could tell me one of them, but you've never forgotten that message because it had a single. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming, and uh, talking about the crucifixion and all the things that the disciples and others went through. But Sunday was coming. It was a powerful message. People listened to it all across the United States. It had a key message. I remember Dave Thompson's, who's here, and he preached a message, the final message of one of the conference, and it was titled "The Doctor Must Die." Never forgotten it because he had a single message. He had subpoints that focused in on that. When I'm speaking about physician assisted suicide on Fox, I'll say legalizing physician assisted suicide is dangerous. And I'll probably say it 20 times in 20 different ways in a three minute interview. It's dangerous for physicians. It's dangerous for patients. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Because when it's all over, I want to remember one thing it's dangerous. And if I can get them to begin to even consider it might be dangerous, they're not going to support it. So what's your key message? Remember our first deputation, I used a sermon based on Matthew 16, 24. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And talked about our coming to a surrender to let God control our lives. And talked about denying yourself and then uh, following him. And what does that mean? And it means the, dealing with people's physical needs and dealing with their spiritual needs. And then, yeah, there's a price to pay. And God didn't say that. He said he was going to be with you. He didn't say he was going to be without problems. And there's taking up your cross. And that's a great little outline. I used it uh, for all our messages uh, that first year. That was my key message. So um, there's, there's ops, opportunities to think, what is a key message? What do I want them to remember when this is all over? And then your subpoints promote, uh, support that message. One to three points, subpoints that can move it into that and um, help people to support uh, that message. And then you drive it home. Uh, how did Jesus preach? How did he communicate with people? He told parables. He shared a principle and told a story. Or he told a story and shared a principle. I figured if it worked for him, it should work for me and you, right? And people are moved, especially adults, uh, by stories and, uh, and sound bites and things like that. And so you drive it home by telling a story. And, uh, you know, I remember when I was talking about, you know, following him and doing what he'd do, I say, let's imagine we just got a 747 out in the parking lot. Let's get in. I, that's going to be a little tight, but we're going to get out of here, and I'm going to take you to Africa, and we're going to go around some hospital this morning. And I would mentally take them from ward to ward and end up with the first HIV patient I'd ever taken care of. And, you know, sitting there with saliva pouring down her face in a rag and misery and, you know, and the nurses were afraid to touch her because we didn't know much about HIV in those days. Those type of things that people can just picture and put themselves in that situation. Uh, and uh, I do a thing about teach, let my dad deliver a baby. And I mean, I'm actually down delivering the baby with him and going through the motions of doing that. It's drama, it's, it's inflection, it's stories, it's really taking them there to see what's going on. And that story is about boldness. Because uh, I make the point when I finish, I said, ladies, if my dad was here, I wouldn't advise you let him deliver your baby. Because he knew nothing about delivering babies. The only reason he could do it was because I was there. And God's going to ask you to do some things. They're going to scare you to death. But remember, he's the one. It'll be right beside you. And I have this thing where Dad, I grab Dad's hand and slapped it in my hand. And I, I do that. It's just, and God grabs your hand and says, let's go. So those type of stories are extremely par- powerful. And then you want to picture its application. It's not just telling the story, but how does it apply to the people there? 
Christ just didn't tell a parable and, and then leave it at that. He applied it in the disciples' lives or the people's lives or whatever. And, uh, and of course, most of the four Gospels are stories from his life. And then you want to conclude with a challenge to give, to pray, to go, whatever. But you've got something you're asking them to do. I've heard a lot of missionaries get up and, and tell stories and share what they're doing. And then they sit down. What are you asking these people to do? How do you want them to be changed when you leave that room? And if you go in there and focus on that, guess what? The money will come. Now, I'll talk about how to do the ask for the money as well in just a moment. Uh, people get more nervous around larger audiences. You know, you got a small group in, in somebody's home that may not be as intimidating. And I was talking about this briefly, but... Uh, no matter how big the group, I always imagine I'm just talking to one person. Just talking to one person. I mean, I've preached here many times, plenaries and stuff, and and I want to know. I want to think. What do I want one person to know? What to, I want them to change? What do I want them to act upon? I'm speaking to a large group, but I'm focused on one person. If you're real nervous about it, prepare. Uh, often, if I'm going. Uh, before a large group, I'll do something I've done somewhere else. In fact, when some new thing happens in the news, I'm always hoping I'll get a couple small radio stations calling uh, for an interview before CNN does. Because what? I get to hone my message and, and get it down to the key points and, and get it smoothed out. And so uh, if nothing else, do it in front of your spouse or do it in front of a friend and you know, get some practice if you're really nervous about doing this. And, um, and preparing a talk and even rehearse it. I've seen people do this in front of a mirror and uh, give their message, go through it mentally, uh, relax, pretend that you're talking uh, you know, to just a few people. I know that's difficult. A, a key thing that often distracts people if they're speaking to groups is looking them in the eye and it gets them distracted. Good speakers, and I'm doing it right now, I look right over top of your heads. And as best you can tell, I'm looking at you, but I'm not looking at you directly in the eye because I can be distracted in my thoughts. And just a little tip that can help if you're speaking to a group. Uh, exaggerate with large groups. If I was speaking down here in the auditorium, little motions like this aren't going to even be seen unless they're up on the screen, but especially if you don't have a screen. And so you, you have bigger motions and, and uh, your voice projection. And uh, one of the key things in speaking is what? to vary your timing, your tone, and uh, your loudness, and move. When I speak, I move. Why? Because I get more energized and people get less sleepy. Right? So you move as you speak, and those type of things are very helpful. Show and tell, we've talked about that, uh, and it can make a, a very big difference. I used to... I remember when I was, I went to a Christian boarding school in high school. We had chapel every morning, vespers every night, three services on Sunday. I was in more church in four years than most of you will be in your lifetime. And I heard a lot of great speakers. I mean, Billy Graham came and Jack Wardson's kids were there from Word of Life and all sorts of things. And I can't tell you many of those messages, but I still remember a couple of them. And it was because they were show and tell. I remember one of our, our uh, uh, single women teachers did one on the adjoinings of time, and she took a stack of quarters and said, every time you waste time, you're just wasting money, and she'd flick about to the audience. I've never forgotten that. <laughs> you're just wasting money, and we were out there trying to get the quarters, you know. So, uh, and I remember we had a, a prison chaplain come. He worked in a federal prison in Atlanta, and he's telling this story about this guy getting stabbed. And he got to the point where he's being stabbed, reached into his pocket, and pulled out the homemade shiv that he had made. It stabbed the guy with it, stabbed it in the top of the podium, and it was going, you know, we were just like, oh my gosh. Uh, you know, but hey, we in medicine could do that. You could bring the arrow you took out of somebody, or, you know, whatever. Uh, I got a line choker that they used in Kenya, and I'd use that for, for kids' stories before the service, you know, when they had the kids' stories. And, Talk about the devil going like a roaring lion, and you just need to put that choker down his throat and choke him, you know. And it was their eyes would get big, but it was show and tell. They didn't forget that. So feel free to use things. And then the ask. And uh, if you can get someone else to do it, that's great. But uh, how do you do that? And uh, we're going to 
think. I can't remember if I put it. Come on. I don't know how to make this. Uh, sometimes it's the mission dis- uh, committee that's making a decision. It's not a matter of you're going to ask in the church and you're going to work through the mission committee. Sometimes it's going to be individual support and you'll talk to individuals. Sometimes small groups, which are great, Sunday school classes and folks like that. Um, and uh, how to do that we'll talk about more in a minute. Grabbing groups. Uh, home meetings are very effective. They're much more personal. They're much more relaxed. It's more relationship time. Find friends who can invite a few friends over. Uh, it's going to be much more personal. There's times for discussion. There's times for questions and even problem solving. I was speaking to a group of uh, residents in a family practice program. Most of them were not Christian. And um, I thought, how am I going to go about this? I really wanted to give a clear witness. And so what I did was do a problem solving with them and interaction and described how the hospital was when I went there and asked them how they would educate the public on health and stop all these preventable diseases, which started a conversation and discussion going back and forth and then weaved it to where we got into spiritual ministry as well to share with them in the secular program. So um, that's a good way to do it. Uh, Sunday school classes, I mentioned, are great opportunities. And challenging them to do something, take you on as a project, is a great way to go about it. Even community groups. Um, I was just talking to somebody yesterday that's working on a, has a wonderful uh, prosthetic arm they designed. And they've got most of their money. Who are from? Rotary Club. They care about things like that. And so speaking to a civic group, Lions Club is very big into polio eradication. Other people are into other things. And I've spoken to those type of groups and uh, challenged them to get involved to help us accomplish a project. It may not be personal support. Uh, nonprofit groups are a great place. We have chapel a couple times a week. We have a lot of missionaries come in to, to uh, CMDA. And uh, we have a number of them that are getting support from lots of us in the, in the staff. So that's another place. Um, and you may find projects they want to do with you and things you can challenge or it may be personal support or whatever, helping you get equipment or uh, supplies or other things that you need. Businesses are the same way. Businesses are, are great opportunities. Um, I was speaking to that same person yesterday, and they've got businesses that are actually helping to pay for these prosthetic arms and put them together as projects. And uh, so set an appointment with a Christian business leader. It may be somebody that can help you through services at what you're doing, from a construction company to an architect to uh, somebody that a hospital that wants to partner with you. Uh, think outside the box on how uh, relationships you have. Facilitated friendships. I think one of the key things in personal fundraising is to be very organized about it. Make a list. Here's the people I know. Let me clue you in. Some of the people you are sure they're going to support you won't, and some of those you don't have the foggiest idea they would support you will. You'll see that. I can. One of my secular uh, resident faculty was one of our biggest supporters. And then I had some friends, you know, at church. I thought, well, man, we've known these people for years. They didn't. So um, sometimes people have other things they're supporting and all the rest of it. But don't put people off that list based on how well you think their potential is because sometimes it will surprise you. Um, And then make it very personal. Can we get together for a cup of coffee? Can I come by your house and tell them what it's about? Uh, I would like to tell you about our work and ask you to be part of our support team. And can we sit down and have a cup of coffee and, uh, you know, approach it just very openly. You're not trying to ambush people. And uh, people knowing what it's about will help get them prepared. Um, I encourage you, if you're traveling and doing things like that, to stay in people's homes. Oftentimes when I'm out speaking, I'll say, would you like a hotel or would you like to stay in someone's home? I always say, I like to be in a hotel because I get some privacy. But where you develop the deepest relationships? People's homes. Where we are at Christian Medical and Dental Association, my home is three, four minute walk through the woods. We have people with us constantly staying. It's not because we don't have any hotels. It's because that's where I'm going to develop the deepest relationship. When you come for training, why don't you stay with us? When you come down for this conference, why don't you stay with us? Kids are all gone. We've got four extra bedrooms. Hey, we'd love to have you. 
the week after Thanksgiving, we'll have uh, five, uh, two, two couples and two singles in our home. And that is just frequent. I tease Jody, she still runs a guest house like she did on the mission field. So, uh, but people will say, wow, I, you really feel like you know someone when you've been in their home. And the relationships are much deeper. Um, personal notes, there may be difficulty meeting some people and getting together with them. And so if you're going to do a RASC, I told you prayer letters and form letters don't work that well. Write them a handwritten personal note. Handwritten. Uh, week before last, I wrote 350 personal notes to CMDA supporters. And uh, end of the year is coming, and I did it as a Thanksgiving card, and I not just signed them, I wrote each person a personal note. And, uh, yeah, it was a big investment time, and I had a lot of writer's cramp. But I personalized everyone. I had lists of what they had done, and, you know, they'd been on a CMDA mission trip. They had been in a conference, or I'd met them somewhere. We'll talk about having that kind of information available to you. And, um, and personal notes really make a difference. And uh, especially when you're asking, you want them to give regularly, and we'll talk about that. Uh, get them there. The uh, best thing you can do with supporters is actually get them over to where you are when you get there. And you get a couple out of a church that's supporting you or someone and coming. They go back and they're your ambassadors from then on in that uh, church. Come over on a work team um, or whatever. And uh, I know if I can now, if I can get people inside our headquarters in Bristol, the whole relationship changes because they feel like they know us in a deeper way. And their support is going to increase. So that's why we have conferences and all sorts of things going on there. The art of the ask. Let's talk about it. And that's where people really have difficulty. Hey, Dave, I love talking to my friends, but I don't want to ask them for money. When I'm talking with the group and, and a message, I will just weave into it. And there's different ways to do this the way I do it. Is that and I, how I did it my first time I did it in 1980, is that they have an opportunity to invest. And the way I do that, I'll weave into my message. I'll say, you know, Jody and I, I hope you've got some good investments. You know, you never know what's going to happen to the economy. And uh, we're thinking for the future and retirement. We've been investing for years, and i got some investments I bet you'd like. I've got some investments in Spain. I've got some investments in Honduras. I've got some investments in, uh, in Africa. And they're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? The investments I have are in missionaries that Jody and I support. You know, the Bible tells us I'm going to get a return on the ministry that they're doing because of the prayers and the financial support we've given. And by the way, if you'd like to get a great investment, we'd like you to invest in us. As you invest, we'll be out there working for you. And guess what? Those returns are going to take to heaven with you. And if you'd like to do that, and I'm doing this very briefly... There's just a card there, in the, in the, right there at the pew. If you could just pick that up, it's self-explanatory, explain it, tell them exactly what to do with it, and in detail, so it's very clear, put it on the table in the back or give it to us and fill that out. And this is a faith promise commitment, and it's not based upon a pledge or anything. It's what God enables you to do, and what we really would like you to do is be a monthly supporter, a quarterly supporter, or whatever. When I was raising funds, I wasn't after one-time gifts. I'd rather have somebody give me $25 a month and $500 check because you want them to continue to be part of your team, $500 rolls away pretty quick, but $25 a month continues forever or $50 or whatever. And then let people know what you expect. People want to know what, what they can meet your expectations. And so when I go out next week, I won't be saying we would like to give you, I'd like you to give to this campaign. These are some big major donors. I'm going to turn to them and say, would you prayerfully consider a half a million dollars? And these people, the two people I'm talking to next week, they have that capacity. And I don't, and that's not what I'm recommending for you. <laughs> so that would take care of a lot of issues, wouldn't it? But, but uh, you know, we're looking, we're looking for 100 people who are going to, to, to uh, by faith, promise $50 a month of support, $600 a year, you know. 
And, and, and maybe you like to do that, or maybe you like to do more than that. But here are the, here are the giving levels. I remember I'm on the board of my uh, Asbury University, and they're having fundraising, and the president and the director of stewardship came down to Bristol, and let's go out to dinner. I knew what this was all about. And they turned to me and said, uh, Dave, would you prayerfully consider giving $50,000 to this campaign? And I you know, sucked down in my seat. I thought, they must think I make a physician's salary. But you know what? I gave more than I was planning to because they had let me know what their hope was, and I stretched, and Jody and I did more than we had talked and discussed about. And I don't regret that, but they did it. They stretched me with their ask. And no one can argue with uh, you know, the fact of uh, prayerfully considering a sense of urgency. I really need this by such a date. Uh, we're trying to meet this goal, or we have matching funds for something. Um, I have a friend that's a missionary and they were trying to build a house and they got somebody to give a large gift and they gave it as matching funds and they had a deadline and so they're telling people, you know, if we can raise this other $50,000 by uh, June this summer, we're going to get 50000 so your money will be matched and it will double. That creates a, a sense of urgency. Um, prayerfully, would you prayerfully consider is not offensive. Um, and you're giving people this target amount, target amounts we've talked about. Always have some sort of written materials to give them, a uh, prayer card, a brochure, or whatever that they can consider. Now, some people are going to say, well, you know, my wife and I or my husband and I, we need to pray about that, and that's great, and I want them to pray about it, but what um, always you do is make sure there's some sort of follow-up in those situations. If not, people get busy and forget. Would it be all right if I contacted you in a couple of days to see uh, what decision you've made uh, or see how God has led you on this issue? So you're giving them a time that you're going to check back with them, uh, which helps them get to the decision-making and get home. The kids are acting up and they're trying to get them in bed and tomorrow is busy and Wednesday and for long it's out of their mind and gone. So always... Um, do that. There's also such a thing called a preemptive gift if you're in fundraising. And preemptive gift, people know there's something going on, so they give a small amount so you can't ask them for more. It's called a preemptive gift. And, um, and so uh, you really want to get to the people uh, so that doesn't happen where you can actually uh, let them know exactly uh, what the, the need is. Uh, potent prayer. I've heard missionaries say, well, if you can't support us, pray for us. Oh, my goodness. When you're up to your elbows and somebody's having a middle of the night and you don't know what in the world you're doing and what you're finding and all the money in the world ain't going to make any difference, or as you're a nurse and trying to take care of a seriously ill patient, um, you know, you need more prayer than you need money. Um, and getting people, letting people know that prayer is important. Secondly, and, and as a side, people that are regularly praying for you someday are probably going to support you. They may not be now, but if they're getting your information and they're really praying for you and as needs come aware, uh, they're going to help. So it helps in that. And I treat them exactly the same. It's not one or the other. I, more than anything, I need your prayers. And uh, that's what's going to make us effective. That's what's going to provide protection for our family. That's what is going to enable us to do the ministry God's called us to. Uh, let your requests be known and don't overwhelm people with every little thing. Uh, but specific prayer requests regularly, let them know follow-up and God has answered. Uh, I got an urgent prayer request from my daughter there in North Africa in a Muslim country. And uh, this little girl they thought was demon-possessed. And uh, they never faced anything like that before. It was a neighbor's child in a difficult situation. Her husband had left her. She was pregnant and, and had this little girl. And her eyes were rolled up in her head. And they consulted with some uh, Christians there. And everybody thought, that's what's going on. And so, you know, we got this urgent message. And all sorts of people were praying. And the next morning, God delivered her. I mean, it just disappeared after fasting and prayer that they were doing uh, with this, uh, fa uh, this little girl and laying on hands. So uh, then we got this note saying, wow, God has answered our prayers. How beautiful was that? And, of course, it happened in about 24 hours. Dig the data. Dig the data. 
create a database and really put some thought into what kind of information you need to know. How do I want to sort this and use this information? So when I was doing my database, if they were, I had a column for if they were in medicine and what their specialty was. Because I was going to do some communications just to my healthcare friends, you know, get into the gross stuff of what was happening at the hospital and the crazy stuff we were doing medically. And so I could just pull out that database and pull out all the medical folks that I knew and, and contact them. You want a column for which church they belong to, if you're in churches. Because when you go back, you want to pull out a list of everybody in that church. You're going to have a hard time remembering them. They're all going to remember you. And, oh, it's so good to see you back. And you're thinking, who in the world is this? If you've got that, in this day and time, I'd take digital pictures and punch their picture into my database uh, if I could. Uh, key contacts, uh, how much funding they're giving. And so you can sort by knowing exactly when you go back uh, what kind of commitment they've made. Uh, when you last contact them, a notes section, I wrote them a note in such and such a day and talked about this. Keeping that database will keep you intimate with people and when you've got a lot of them, that gets difficult unless you have good data. I put a lot of personal information in. There's nothing better than going back to somebody's home and saying, how is Frodo the dog doing? Oh, Frodo died. I'm so sorry to hear about that. I remember we played on the couch when I was here last time. I mean, I'm putting that type of stuff in my database. They're hobbies, things you did together, places you visited a special restaurant they took you out to, whatever. So when I go back, I can have an intimate conversation with this couple because I have too much to remember. It's not that I don't want to remember it, but after you get all over the place, uh, it's going to happen. Uh, you want to keep it up to date. Make sure your mail address guaranteed once a year if you're sending uh, snail mail or email these days. And then use the data when you call, when you write notes, uh, when you do things with people. You're using your data and, um, and making sure that uh, it's uh, really a deep contact with them. Frequent follow-up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 70 times 70. Thank you. Uh, personal notes, phone calls, mail, uh, whatever. Um, and gifts, uh, our mission let us give small gifts uh, every year or so. I remember one year, this is back in the early 80s, when we were very common, we, found, we had some magnetic hearts made. They were big red magnetic hearts, and it says, we have a heart for missions. And gave it to people with our prayer cards to put on the refrigerator. That was 30 years ago, and I still find them on people's refrigerators when we go visit and, uh, and they'll say, oh, yeah, we still have your prayer card, you know, and I'm 30 years old or 20 years old or whatever. It's old photographs now. Um, those little gifts, refrigerators, calendars, little mementos from the field, that type of stuff uh, can make a, a real difference. Uh, monthly uh, follow-up, uh, personal note, email, uh, or, you know, at least quarterly you want to be in contact. And now with email, it's easy to do short notes uh, often. Uh, show the product. What they want to know is, are you saving lives and are people coming to Christ? And so everything you do should be built around the fact of telling the story of how their investment, their prayers, their finances are changing lives. And we're going to talk about how to write prayer letters in just a moment because a lot of them are really bad. Tell stories, uh, family updates, but you want to keep those brief. Uh, they want to know more, not what you're doing, but how what you're doing is affecting you. How does that make you feel? What was it like when you sent your kids off to boarding school? What was it like when you were stuck in the middle of nowhere in the car that night? Uh, walk them through uh, the story uh, and keep them updated. Um, keep it concise. If you're a real great writer, you can write a four-pager, but most people won't take time to read it. And so uh, keep it concise and more frequent versus long. Um, never start a prayer letter. I'm so sorry we haven't written in so long. How many prayer letters do I get like that? How? Okay, well, let's, let's make them remember that, that you haven't contacted them. We do a Christian Doctors Digest every two months. Every member I meet says it's a monthly thing because they can't remember. And so when the last time you wrote, it's not going to be the deal that they want to hear. You want to generate emotion. 
when you're right, not conveying just facts. And then you want to vary the vehicle uh, of how you approach this and do it in innovative ways. You may have a letter coming from your kids to them or an unusual writing material. I, I, we were doing some work with Josh McDowell a few years ago, and uh, Josh wrote me a note on the back of a boarding pass on an airplane. It was just two sentences. Wow, I still have it. It's in my desk. Because I thought, what a great idea, because it, it was like, I am so busy, but Dave, you're so important. I'm going to write. I don't have anything to write on, but I'm putting it on the boarding pass. You know, it was great. We appreciate what you guys are doing with us, Josh. So how can you do things that are unusual? I remember I wrote an article for a mission magazine, and I wrote it like a progress note in the hospital. And, uh, and oh, they, were, they loved it. it. It was in a different format from a different perspective than anything they'd ever have for. So um, maybe a video greeting. We can do that uh, to the church, a uh, live phone call from where you are, an MP3 file of you preaching or teaching or sharing, uh, your family singing, uh, you know, anything, interviews with key staff, you know, take your smartphone and say, what, what does this ministry mean to you? And let them share and edit that to a few sentences and get it out to people. How can you communicate in a new and different way? And, um, and make a difference. I shot a video last week for a Women in Medicine and Dentistry Conference, a Women Physicians for Christ Conference. And I couldn't go, but I, wrote the, I, I shot a short video. Man, I wish I could be with you guys. I so appreciate what you're doing and the impact you're making in women healthcare professionals' lives across the country. I want you to know I'm going to be praying for you during this conference. A minute and a half. And, uh, wow, they're thinking, Dave's thinking of us. Let's talk about perfecting your prayer letter in our closing time here. I get some awful prayer letters. This is one that I didn't get. I pulled it off the Internet, and I can't read it, and that's good, uh, because it's awful. We went here, we went there, we've been in 16 states now that we've been at home, and here's the list of them. Uh, That's about when I... I've got good friends that even read their prayer letters. I mean, people that I've actually worked with, and it's painful. Um, Yeah, and then I have some that I eagerly grab and read every word. Uh, A compelling lead is so important. You want to grasp their attention in the first paragraph. Um, Let me give you some uh, theoretical leads. I was lost, night was falling, and the lions were beginning to roar. Would you read that letter? How do you tell a starving child about Jesus? I looked in every textbook I had, but there was nothing about treating a hippo bite. (laughs) Yeah, I've treated a hippo bite. (laughs) I wrote that letter. Uh, And then you want a theme. So what is the theme of this letter? It's not just a travel log. What is the key sentence? This is your key message. Key sentence or two in the first couple paragraphs that state your views on the topic you want to talk about. So if I was doing that one about the lines are roaring, I might say, no matter how dangerous the situation, God is there to see you through. What's the theme of my letter? It's trust. No matter how difficult the situations or dangerous they may be, God will see you through. Starving child, meeting physical needs to earn the right to share the gospel. First, Christ met people at their point of need, ministered to them, and then introduced them to his father. So should we. Okay? Or the hippo bite, and beyond the importance of prayer. It's your faithful prayers and support, uh, prayers that see me through seemingly insurmountable challenges. And I'm going to get that in the first. So you've themed the letter. You've, you've, got, you've pulled them in. Something crazy's happened or some emotion you've gone through or challenge or whatever. And then you prove uh, your message and using analogies and stories and scriptures and sound bites. And you want to share emotions and feelings because that's what people relate to. I was scared. Talking about that hippo bite or the lines. I was scared. But I was the, my patient's only hope. I didn't have the instrument I needed to control the bleeding. My soul cried out, God, help me. I can tell you about that case. 
you know, you, 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 you get down to what, how you were feeling and how it impacted you. Uh, pictures are great. And if you don't have pictures, paint them with words. You don't have to have pictures to paint a picture. Carry a camera. One of the things you see is a lot of people taking pictures of things they're seeing. What people want to see is you in that situation. So hand the camera to someone else. Get them a picture of you doing things, the family doing things, the kids doing things. And don't, uh, all people always look at pictures. They'll always scan the pictures in your letter. And, uh, and that's why you often want to have some little description below them with the point that you're trying to make. Uh, avoid jargon, uh, especially us medical folks. It's easy to say words and things people don't understand. So if you're using jargon or foreign language or talking about the culture in some way, make sure you explain it so you don't leave them in the dark. Uh, share your prayer request, money needed, projects, and give a clear opportunity to respond. Thank them for what they've done and are doing. And uh, ask them, I always ask people to write me and let them know how I can pray for them. It's a two-way street. Tell me what's going on in your life and uh, let us know. And then it conclude with something pithy, a statement on your theme. Um, you know, I've... Uh, if I was doing that line thing, I'd say, I learned one thing. No matter how deep in the jungle of Africa I go, God is there taking care of me. And he will take care of you in your jungle as well. So what I'm doing is punching home my message at the end. And that was, you know, a sentence and a half uh, of stuff. The great physician is an expert in treating hippo bites. I'm so thankful he stood by and guided me. Isn't it wonderful to know that God is sufficient for your needs as well? So this type of thing where you really conclude it and punch it home uh, makes a great uh, difference. This is going to be difficult for you to read, but this is an excellent prayer letter. I'm going to read it to you. It's one of my, uh, it's an African-American surgeon, the only one I know of in Africa, who worked with us, and then he worked in Nairobi. Listen to this. I called him Pasaka. Easter sounded like a girl's name, but Pasaka, the Swahili equivalent, Sounds much more masculine. As a matter of fact, it was not really what I named him. He was a nameless piece of trash discovered by someone and dropped at one of the orphanages we support. You don't hear me people call a child a piece of trash. We estimated his age to be about three months and his weight to be less than two pounds. Pasaka looked more like a large, starving, dirty rabbit than a human child. See these descriptive words? The emotion that it generates? He was dehydrated, malnourished, with each of his cheekbones protruding and his eyes receding into his small face. He responded to pain by withdrawing his limbs as we searched in vain to find a place to put a needle uh, for rehydrating fluids. I took the alternative route of directly sticking a needle into his foreleg, just below the knee, deep into the marrow, it is a common route in extreme cases of dehydration in infants in work this time, explaining the medical stuff going on. We estimated Pasaka's weight and began rapid infusion of balanced salt solution with boluses of glucose to give energy to his obviously starving frame. Pasaka was one of the five children I admitted this Easter weekend. Three of them severely sick enough to die, and one severe enough that he did die. Pasaka seemed as though he would live. I was too tired, too busy to check on him the fifth time as the child which followed him came in between three C-sections and only heard about his fifth child's death on arrival. He supposedly had pneumonia. It's hard to tell much about a child whom you find in a garbage dump. I'm all torn up and... I've read this a hundred times. This Easter has been memorable for these several admissions. For nameless children clinging to life in a world, and on a day when all we think about is Easter eggs and bunny rabbits with jelly beans and chocolate, Pasaka, should he survive, will know different. I'm having trouble reading. It's in red. Ah, if he lives, it will be because Christ lives and has inspired people like you to send people like me to stick needles in the bones of children as Christ had nails placed in his hands. Hmm. 
If you write that, I'll read your prayer letter. <laughs> Questions, comments. But you can see that wasn't that long. It was short. It was concise. It was, it was gripping. And then he made a point. It's people like you sending people like me to stick no, you know, needles into bones like, wow, the analogy at the end was powerful. I've kept that prayer letter for 10 years, I think. So, Questions, comments? Yes, sorry. How would you encourage, like, remaining engaged, especially digitally with supporters if you're in a, like, an unregistered closed country? Yeah, our kids are, and, and uh, they make sure they don't spell words like they're really spelled. You know, Muslim is M-L-S-I-M or whatever. So things can't be scanned and pulled out of the Internet. Uh, they use letters to mean things and all that kind of stuff. Uh, still contact with us. There's also digital um, services available where everything's encrypted that you send, and it's a program you can buy. Uh, and that's helpful and wise. Um, but at the same time, I would go that route versus not letting them know what you're doing in ministry. So you have to be careful and you have to use wisdom, but there's ways around it. Dave Thompson, who's in Egypt, uh, known Dave for years and works in the PACS program there, and they have an encrypted software program they use to communicate with us and that we can communicate with them. And, and we don't have to have it, but when it, before it gets to him or gets away from him, it's encrypted until it gets to us. So there's ways to, to get around that. Um, you know, emails are great ways to communicate. Of course, it's much cheaper. Uh, you want to keep them short. You want to keep them frequent. You want to keep them worthy of being read. Other questions, comments? Yes? Um, you talked about using the database and making notes. What were you using to be able to sort everything? Uh, well, back in those days, I can't even tell you. It's some old program from 35 years ago. I would use Excel or something like that now, and you can set it up very easily uh, and sort based on anything you want to. I want to know who my biggest donors are. I want to know who's the head of the, if they got a position, who's the head of the mission committee. Uh, we still have churches. I mean, I still raise probably, you know, a lot of my donors have passed on, but I probably still raise 25, 30% of my support at CMDA through personal donations in churches and stuff. And so I still write prayer letters, and I wrote one last week. So, other questions or comments? Yes. I, I should have said this to you. I have never known a healthcare missionary who couldn't raise their support. Period. People who couldn't utter two words in front of a group have raised their support. So, you know, relax on that. People, it's very easy to illustrate the need. I would say a year, uh, once you get through your orientation training or whatever, uh, is probably the average. And for many people, it's less than that. Um, you know, now it's about $100,000 to keep a missionary on a field per year with everything included is kind of the average. So um, it takes some time, but uh, people are eager to invest in something worthwhile. And the thing about doing medicine, people can really picture what you're doing. Any other questions? We've got a couple minutes. Yes. Um, what would you advise for people going out for the first time? A lot of these, I was thinking about, you know, compelling leads. Um, you kind of have to do cool things or see your work as important when you don't yeah. know what you're well, you speak in generalities. If you've been to the field and have some experience, that's helpful going short term. I'd been three times to the hospital where I worked, and so I'd helped out and had stories. If you don't have your own stories, get some good missionary books and get their stories. Missionary books in your country is the best. And so if I was going to Tenwick where I was, uh, I helped get written Miracle at Tenwick and the story of the hospital, and there's wonderful stories in there. So I'd grab some of those out and talk about this. I would talk to some of the missionaries there, tell me what's going on, what the challenges are, how you know I'm going to help meet them, whatever, uh, to, to get their feedback. So you just collect information and use it. And then what your dreams are and your hopes and all the rest of it. I had no idea what I, I knew I was going to work at the hospital. I, if God had told me everything he had in store, I probably wouldn't have gone the first time. Anything else? Yes? Yeah. Yeah. And we have 300 sponsored kids already that, and the community. And I just wondered, like, do you have any um, 
suggestions on um, doing our best fundraising for this? Yeah, for projects, you've got to, what is the impact? What difference is it going to make? And then show that if it's something you're already doing, we're already working with these kids who've got 300, tell their stories. Here's a picture of this child. Let me, you know, here's Pasaka. And change this child's life. But we've got more kids than we need to do with. We need more space. And here's where we are. And here's what we hope to look, what it's going to look like. And we need so many people, this much money, and we can get this built by July, you know, or whatever. But you just really, you know, you focus in. People care about people. And the more personal that you can make it and, and put the kids in there and show the need, uh, they'll jump on board. And then give them an easy way to give. I wouldn't ask anybody, you know, we need regular gifts. I'd rather have a $25 a month than a $1,000 check. Uh, on projects, sometimes you just want to raise a goal and you're fine with that. But help sponsor a kid or whatever and, uh, or sponsor this building and its maintenance. Give every month or every quarter. We're out of time. Thank you all. God bless.